Hi folks, uh, welcome back for another episode of Bibliology. Um, Patrick here. Before I get on to the show, I'd just like to encourage you all to consider donating to charities to help Ukraine. As I record this, the war is still very much happening and we're all very disturbed by what we're seeing. It's not what God or any human being with an ethical bone in their body wants to see happening. So please consider donating to any of the charities I've linked in the description. Uh, they're all trustworthy and will provide those struggling with food, shelter, healthcare, whatever they need. And as well as this, please continue to pray for peace and reconciliation. Even if you're listening to this long after the war, I would wager that the effects of the conflict are still being felt. So please consider helping. It's never too late to make a difference. Thank you. Today on the podcast, you'll get to hear my recent conversation with Professor Reed Carlson, who is an assistant professor of biblical studies at United Lutheran Seminary and an excellent scholar of Old Testament and Second Temple Judaism. He is particularly interested in studying spirit phenomena in the biblical period, and we'll be talking about Reed's recent book documenting the way that the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible depicts spirit possession, something that we often assume is confined to the New Testament. You can find the book in the description below. It's a fascinating case that Reed makes, and and I'll let him lay it out in the conversation. So, without further ado, let's get on to it. Well, hello, Reed. It's great to have you on, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. We are going to be speaking about your upcoming or recently published book called Unfamiliar Selves in the Hebrew Bible, Possession and Other Spirit Phenomena. And people can find a link to that in the description if they're interested. But we're going to be talking about this very interesting contribution of yours. But I think before that, it might be interesting just uh, to ask you some general questions so the audience can get to know you as a person, see the see the man behind the academic mask and <laughs> all that. Um, Firstly, uh, you are the first guest on the show to have attended Harvard. Congratulations. Um, I think we've only had like 12 episodes, so, you know. <laughs> but um, to what extent are the caricatures about Harvard true, in your opinion? I think that a lot of the stereotypes or car um, caricatures of, of Harvard, a lot of them are associated with the college in particular. Yeah. Um, and uh, people, you know, coming right out of high school kind of, and, and, um, and so I was not uh, connected to the college too much during my studies there. Cause uh, I did my, my doctorate at the divinity school. Uh, that being said, um, there certainly are a lot of bright people walking around, um, at, at Harvard university. Uh, I certainly won't, um, contradict you on that. But that being said, I think there's a lot of bright people walking around a lot of universities around the world. And perhaps what uh, makes Harvard distinct, uh, one is, is maybe a particular kind of preparation. Um, certain, certain, uh, certain schools feed Harvard uh, with a, maybe a certain kind of approach. And then also Harvard is just uh, super rich. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think, yeah, that's right? the, so rather than the raw horsepower of the students themselves, uh, I think those are two bigger factors. 
Yeah, that is definitely the other caricature that, you know, yeah. everyone has a pot of gold who goes to Harvard. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah well, the institution itself is rich. Uh, certainly not all of the students that go are, but the yeah. institution yeah. itself is, yeah. Getting on to your religious side, because um, you, of course, are a religious person to some extent. Um, in the acknowledgement section of your book, um, you describe yourself as being raised a fifth generation Pentecostal, which is a very, very, uh, very interesting fact. Yeah. And what, what prompted the change of theological scenery to the Episcopal Church? You now um, are a reverend, I believe, in the Episcopal Church. So yeah. um, what do you like about this denomination? What was the, what prompted the change? Yeah, it was um, like so many things. It was, um, uh, it was a, slower process uh, for me that I uh, didn't really realize it was happening until it kind of already had. Uh, I I grew up, like I said, Pentecostal. My parents are Pentecostal ministers. And um, going back to, as I said, my, my great-grandparents uh, are Pentecostals, which, you know, the uh, Pentecostal movement isn't really that old. <laughs> so, so uh, deep roots in the tradition. For me, it started actually when I went to college. I went to a um, denominational uh, kind of Bible college, or used to be called a Bible college. Now it's a university. And and while I was there, I got more interested in the academic study of Scripture, as well as in um, kind of the wider church and different church traditions. I found that um, I actually really enjoyed liturgy and singing hymns, things like that. <laughs> and the church I'd grown up in did not did not do any of that stuff. And uh, I also found a certain type of, we might say, um, anti-intellectual streak, at least in the corners of the Pentecostal church where I was, that um, I kind of reacted against a little bit. And so that set me off searching. And um, I landed in an Episcopal church almost almost accidentally, I, I wanted to, um, uh, I wanted to sing hymns and do liturgy and take communion. And I couldn't take communion at the, at the Roman Catholic church or at the Orthodox church, but I could do it at the Episcopal church. <laughs> and that was kind of really how, what got me in the door. Um, the, uh, the rector at that church, uh, got to know me, found out about my background and encouraged me to pursue ordination. And then, um, and now, now here I am. Mm, that's interesting. And do you think that the is there's still a bit of that Pentecostal side hanging around? Because I'm thinking your interests, you're talking about learning about, I'm sorry, you're studying spirits and stuff like that. And yeah. that's, of course, a huge emphasis in the Pentecostal church. So do you think that's yeah. still there somewhat? Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think that my um, interest in this topic stem from my my roots. I don't feel like I uh, rejected my background necessarily so much as just added to it. And one of the things that struck me as I continued um, studying more and more, uh, a lot of the stuff I was reading about spirits, um, about uh, perceptions of religious experience, charismatic phenomena, et cetera, these types of things, uh, I found them kind of inadequate to uh, what I remembered growing up, and particularly um, certain, we might say, spiritual people or, or, or a key figure, I think, um, particularly of my two grandmothers to whom uh, this book is dedicated. Uh, for them, uh, living in a spirit world 
was uh, a source of hope and deep meaning and empowerment in ways that I found a lot of the theological literature that I was reading um, that was supposedly very learned uh, that it couldn't account for, or at least couldn't account for completely. So in part, I wanted to uh, pursue that a little bit intellectually with this book. And before we get into a bit more into today's uh, spooky topic, maybe that's the wrong word, because of course you're saying that this is a, a positive thing for, for your grandparents, but I'd be curious to know, have you ever witnessed anything unequivocally supernatural in, in your <laughs> own life? Have you seen ghosts or whatever, or that kind of thing? <laughs> so I think that for a lot of people of faith, the question, have you experienced anything spiritual, uh, any moments where you say, yeah, this was a God moment, God was here, um, kind of like Jacob, you know, uh, Jacob and his dream at Bethel, God was here and I didn't even know it. I think for a lot of people, the answer has to be yes, uh, that that we see things or experience things or, um, you know, know things that, that, that make us aware of that. Um, where I struggle actually with your question is that is that um, adjective unequivocal. Um, and because that's where I think where where it kind of gets challenging is that if it's unequivocal, then then if it, if, if it's just proven, then then where does the faith component come in, you know? Uh, and and of course, I remember uh, things, things that maybe happened at an altar call or things that happened while I was praying growing up as a, as a kid, Pentecostal kid, things that at the time astounded me and amazed me. And then as the years went by, I said, well, maybe, maybe this is actually what was going on. And maybe, actually, maybe it was this or, you know, something like that. And, and I equivocated on it. And, and I think the challenge is that um, just like with the, the material, what, what I hope to engage in the book is that that subjectivity, that experience is, is always um, the challenge. Whatever is happening out there in the world, we still experience it through our senses, through our sight, you know, hearing, et cetera. And, and um, that is something that it limits us from being able to say unequivocally what is going on. Perhaps that was, perhaps that was the wrong word to use. I suppose um... The, th the closest I can think of off the top of my head to something like unequivocal would be, you know, I don't know if you've read like Greg Keener's book, Miracles, that that has a lot of interesting accounts that seem fairly, uh, it, it seems fairly straight, it's fairly unequivocal, you know, when you think yeah. about it. But I suppose, you know, you can, ex I suppose there's even in those kind of categories where someone gets remarkably healed or something you can still say well maybe there's just things about the immune system we don't know or something yeah you can always yeah it's it's amazing i think uh i'm i haven't read that particular book by keener but i'm i'm, I'm familiar with his work and i and i cite him in the book um i would say it is amazing how blind people can be to god's presence and also amazing how eager people can be to find God's presence in all kinds of situations. We'll, we'll get on to talking about your book. Um, uh -huh. Certainly a very uh, interesting one and uh, people definitely should check it out. But I suppose the first question I have is that often when, 
lay, lay people and even some academics when they come to the New Testament, stories of uh, possession and exorcism. Uh, they think this is kind of a brand new thing. Where did this, where did this come from? And um, um, do, you, do you think your study corrects this idea? Or do you think there's some truth to it that this is something very different that's going on in the New Testament? The assumption often is that um, that spirit possession type stuff is present only in the New Testament, at least when it comes to biblical literature. And uh, some people have a kind of quasi-supersessionist attitude that is motivating this, uh, that um, this is a sign of the power of Jesus and of the gospel, that all of this was completely unheard of before Jesus came along. Some people aren't necessarily theologically motivated in thinking this. They just simply look at the literature and they say, well, here's, here's some, some weird exorcism stories, a guy in the tombs running around naked. I don't see anything like that, you know, with Moses or anything, you know, and they just kind of look at, at the, at the literature and say, um, it's, it's just not there, you know? And, um, and so I try to push back against both in saying that, um, the, I want to suggest that the new Testament spirit phenomena that we read about is still rooted in the Jewish milieu of the second temple period, and that there are antecedents and that many of the, I guess, unspoken assumptions about the ways spirits work can be identified in pre-Christian literature. At the same time, I am hesitant to try to turn pre-Christian Jewish spirit phenomena into kind of proto or nascent New Testament spirit phenomena. Um, in, in, as a kind of way of saying, well, the Jews almost got it right. Um, that's, that's going too far in, in the opposite direction. My book tries to show that there was robust spirit phenomena in pre-Christian Jewish literature, that at times it looked different than what is found in the New Testament but that the New Testament is one we might say, or, or even early Christian spirit phenomena is a reflex or outgrowth of that world. One of the things you spend some time on in the book is the, um, because I think this is an important clarification that needs to be made, is this modern enlightenment conception of the self. And um, yeah. how does recognizing this assumption on our part um, help when approaching the topic of spirit possession? Yeah, so um, any of your listeners familiar with this discussion will uh, probably know that conceptions of the self, whether in modernity or in antiquity, are extremely contested. And so to talk about one kind of modern notion of the self is is uh, kind of naive, and and it's maybe a um, uh, I guess something, a criticism that I leave myself open to in, in the book, I 
don't necessarily want to talk too much about, um, you know, post-enlightenment notions of the self, uh, especially because I'm not trained in that area. What I do want to latch on to is one aspect of what I see as a common, particularly European-descended idea or conception of the self. And um, for that language, I go to the philosopher um, Charles Taylor, who talks about uh, the buffered self uh, and the idea that um, every person has this ability to uh, kind of protect themselves from incursions from the outside of, of spirits and passions and various things that in many ways to be uh, self-possessed is this kind of virtue or value, um, something that um, is present, we might say, in academia um, as kind of a, a value, something that if you're if you've spent enough time in academia, you're, you're kind of taught to be self-sufficient in that way. And what I want to suggest is that um, a lot of these biblical texts, uh, not, not only do they not share that value, they also don't even think such a thing is possible. We, we, we can be pierced. Uh, spirits come in and out of us all the time, as easily as our breath. And, and, and so it's not so much about protecting yourself are buffering yourself from spirits from the outside as it is cultivating the right spirits and getting protection for the, for the wrong ones. Interesting. I know this is uh, kind of going a bit off field, but do you think that the, do you think the biblical authors had any conception of something like free will, you know, or mm-hmm. do, do you think uh, the fact that, you know, you can be taken over at any time by, by a spirit, does that, um, d- does that impact, um, how we think about that in terms of the Bible? Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great question, and and one I think that people have been wondering for for so long, as as you well know. Uh, I talk a little bit in the book about um, compatibilism, and uh, I cite a scholar named Jonathan Clawans and his work on that. Uh, I think that uh, in some ways. Uh, in some ways, in, in, in many biblical texts, particularly Second Temple texts, we find examples of kind of assumed determinism with respect to uh, humanity's relationship to God, but also windows of agency that come through. Um, uh, and I think the, uh, one of the examples that I use in the book to discuss this is one of these uh, Dead Sea Scrolls called the Hodayot. And... Um, and it just seems like uh, moderns reading this text would say, well, you can't have it both ways. You're either a determinist or you believe in free will. And, and the Hodayot Psalms are like, nah, we, we'll just do both. It's fine. <laughs> they, they don't seem to be bothered by it. And so I think that there is a great um, diversity of this in, in, in biblical literature, uh, and not just in like non-canonical texts like the Hodayot, uh, but I think there are a variety of perspectives and, and just like, just like you and me, um, uh, in, the, the biblical literature can be full of, um, we might say complementary contradictions, um, yeah. just like human beings, uh, walk around with, uh, and, and, and that's okay. Yeah, well, I suppose if anyone doesn't know what compatibilism is, that's basically the view that people are free in so much as they voluntarily do things. 
they might not have a choice to choose otherwise, but what they're doing is consistent with what they want. So that's kind <laughs> of the 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 basic uh, conception of that. And of course, it can it's it's a bit of a minefield that that um, that that discussion. I remember um, uh, buying a book a while ago by a philosopher by the name of Daniel Dennett, and he's a, he's an atheist. But um, I was lost in the first two chapters, even though it was an audio book. It's meant to be easier, and I was like, no, I can't I can't do this. I don't understand what he's talking about. So. If if anyone if anyone dares go near that topic, fair play to you. But um, yeah, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll maybe go we'll maybe uh, move to a more easy. <laughs> right that's now. that's fine with me. Yeah, that's fine with me. I I think the point that I make in the book is that um, the biblical authors are uh, part of the struggle, I guess, but we might say joyful struggle is that the uh, the biblical authors are are wondering about. Uh, the function of prayer in a world where God has preordained everything that's going to happen. And they desire to pray. They want to pray. It, it, they cannot help but petition God. They also affirm God's sovereignty. And, and, and this is, I think, what, um, what uh, Clawans and others are, are, are latching on to. And that's, you know, I think if you if you go on any Christian forum or any Christian subreddit today, even today, every yeah. probably tenth question is going to be, "Why should I pray if God yeah. knows?" Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. It's, it was a struggle for them, and it's a struggle for us. <laughs> yeah, and you, I mean, hey, you don't even need to care about determinism to ask yourself that question: Why should I pray? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. 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 Moving on uh, to um, something about your book, which I was particularly interested is that it involves heavy interaction with the work of ethnographers and anthropologists. Yeah. And why did you think it important to interact with these disciplines so thoroughly and what, as well as that, what was the most important insight you got from them? I wanted to, I, I knew I wanted to do a project on spirits. I was interested in, in, in demons and uh, conceptions of them and, but less less about the kind of mythology of demons trying to chart out, okay, who's Belial, who's Mastama, et cetera, that, that kind of work, uh, that's important work, um, but it's been done. I'm, I'm glad that it's been done. I used a lot of it, but I was really interested in um, the kind of human experience of, of spirits. And I found that the most helpful conversation partners were not in theological disciplines, but people uh, like ethnographers and cultural anthropologists who were working with people today that were uh, were uh, experiencing, or we might say, practicing possession and trance and and, and stuff like that. And uh, what one of the things I appreciated about about their work was that it just took it as a given. Uh, at least the, the the scholars that I was working with, uh, anthropology is 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 quite diverse. Uh, but the scholars that I was working with, they they took it as a given that these experiences were real, at least as far as their as their subjects were concerned. And so they were less concerned about answering the question: Is this legitimate, or can we explain it away? Uh, they they were much more interested in well, how what is what is possession doing 
in this cultural situation? Um, what is it communicating? That's one of the one of the people I cite calls possession a, a, a system of communication. What is being what is being said here? And I found that uh, to be a very interesting insight and one that had not yet been applied to pre-Christian. Um, biblical literature. Uh, scholars of early Christianity had already been doing this for a while, but but the pre-Christian material um, had not yet been treated. And it's it's not surprising that maybe the the most helpful conversation partners were not theological uh, pieces, because of course those are very challenging questions. You know, when, when it comes to theology of. Uh, to what extent? What are these? Uh, are the, do we just say that all these people are demon possessed, or do, yeah. do we do we say that this is uh, they have some positive experience of of spirits, even though they have theological frameworks that are different than Christianity and everything? It's like it's yeah. There's no easy way to answer that, you know. And so yeah. it's it's understandable. To yeah. One of the scholars, uh, Michael Lambic, he used the uh, example of 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 eating of human eating as a way of thinking about spirit possession all human beings eat and they have for for as long as there have been human beings and we have digestive systems we have teeth and tongues and mouths and uh you know uh organs at the other end as well and so there is something universally human about the practice of eating um but culturally Eating is so different, different meals, different practices, different things that are acceptable, impolite, polite uh, preferences, foods that's pure, food, foods that are, are, are pure and impure, et cetera. It's, it's a wide culturally received, um, you know, a, a wide cultural expression. And, and, and he suggested that spirit possession is like this. Uh, human beings all have the organs, so to speak, for spirit possession, but, but we practice it in such differing ways ways that are primarily cultural but also communicate things okay i'll have i'll have to think through that one but that's an interesting uh, way of putting it and you've touched on this a little bit you said that anthropologists you know they assume that what these people are experiencing is is real but i suppose also in your experience how do anthropologists navigate the problem of uh, methodological naturalism um, as it relates to the topic of spirit possession, and that's the view that you kind of have to bracket the assumption that there are actually non-natural things that exist. And um, do do these anthropologists assume that there must be a natural explanation for this phenomena, or do they leave the door open uh, for supernatural interpretations? Maybe there is an internal mm -hmm. debate. Maybe you could just comment. Yeah, yeah, and there there is plenty of work. Um, particularly in the beginning of the 20th century, when when European anthropologists were going into the global south, and, uh, um, witnessing um, spirit possession practices, and they'd say like, "Oh, well, there's this particular mineral in the water here that makes people do this," or uh, you know, they're um, they are religiously primitive; they're not as sophisticated uh, and ethically developed as as we. Um, as we Europeans are, um, those those kinds of approaches, uh, thankfully, have largely been been left behind. Uh, Thank God. Although, yeah, yeah. Although um, sometimes they they um, they reappear with just a, a more um, a sneaky uh, but no less harmful veneer. Uh, so um, 
more recently, uh, a lot of people have looked at kind of social explanations uh, for for using sociology. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a scholar uh, named Yuan Lewis whose work is really influential. Who who talks about spirit possession as a kind of um, safety social safety valve when a group is oppressed too much. Uh, they they act out in in kind of spirit possession ways. Um, this too is something that's been kind of left behind. Um, it's as as kind of being reductionistic and ultimately something that still sees spirit possession as an unhealthy practice. Uh, it's, so the people that I worked with, like you say, I think they 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 bracketed off the question of the legitimacy of the practice. Um, and or, or whether or not it can be proven to be real, uh, can do we have access to metaphysical insights into metaphysical things? You know, in, in part, they're not necessarily people of faith themselves. They might not even be interested in those questions. Uh, purely, they're looking at the human experience and expression of it. And and for me, that was helpful. Um, we might say they, they read possession as a kind of text. And so for me, as a biblical scholar working with texts, that method was, um, you know, was, was easily translated. That, that, that sounds so, so foreign to us who are theologically motivated that someone could be interested in spirit possession without being interested in whether it's real. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, I suppose yeah. that's just how it is. Um, yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd like to talk um, maybe one of the examples in your book, um, talk about that. And this, your first case study for spirit possession in the Old Testament is King Saul. I'll just read one of the relevant passages to the audience just so they can be on the same page. And so this is 1 Samuel 10. I'll just read 9 to 12. Forgive me for using the NIV, but uh, <laughs> that's, the, that's the, the quickest one here. So uh-huh. um, it just reads, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Mm-hmm. The man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. You would quote this because there's a sense in which prophesying is related to the topic of spirit possession. Is that what you'd say? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a a great passage to identify because um, it, it's it's an intersection of a lot of a lot of different issues. Um, the the um, what the what the NIV translates. And he joined in their prophesying. This the, the way to translate this is is actually kind of um, complicated. And if you compare to a different translations, you'll you'll turn up different different things. Um, the first is that that word for prophesying. Uh, the the NRSV, for instance, says, and he fell into a prophetic a prophetic frenzy along with them. And. Wow. Um, yeah, and and uh, that that word there, it's the word for prophesy, but it 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 occurs in um, in the, what's called the hit pile form, and and which is less common, and it's not the usual uh, verbal form for just a prophet, you know, giving an oracle, you know, God says whatever, and 
And it's interesting uh, in that it says that Saul prophesied, but it doesn't tell us what he prophesied. You know, it doesn't say, and then Saul said, uh, you know, I, God says, thus says the Lord, or, you know, something like that. It just says he prophesied, period. Uh, and and that's one of the hints that people have looked at that and been like, oh, what, what's going on here? It's a weird verb. And, and, and so some have wanted to translate this actually as glossolalia. Um, uh, Hermann Gunkel actually uh, is, is one who did this, uh, uh, you know, uh, a long time ago. But Saul is doing something more than just prophesying here uh, and suggesting that perhaps he's he is entering some kind of ecstatic tr ecstatic trance or, or or something like that. The other clue of that is um, is is the other verb about what happens when the spirit uh, when the spirit uh, I forget what the NIV said came powerfully upon him uh, in correct, Hebrew. It's, yeah. Yeah, and, and that might be translated as seized him or grabbed him. The spirit grabbed him. It's the same thing that the spirit does to Samson in the book of Judges, you know, for his powerful feats of strength. And, and so in other places, it just says the spirit was upon, like using locative language, but here that the spirit is actively doing something, which has made some interpreters say, you know, what is going on here? Um, we know from the cultures surrounding Israel in antiquity that that ecstatic prophecy was often taken as a kind of proof that the prophecy was legit. You know, this is what prophets do. They have ecstasy. And, and, and you also find polemics against that. Like, don't listen to those prophets. They're a bunch of crazy people. Um, we find that in antiquity too. And so in this passage, people see Saul as, as kind of embodying, uh, embodying that. Uh, many people do, and, and I'm, I'm one of them. Although to jump to something like Pentecost or something is again that anachronistic jump that I think a lot of Christian interpreters want want to make that I, that I want to kind of pull them back from from doing here. There's that idea of glossolalia. Now that's the idea that basically he was the kind of these unintelligible sort of sounds were coming out of his mouth. Is that what glossolalia basically is? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Potentially in. In uh, in a lot in I think most discussions about glossolalia today tend to look at it's tend to look at uh, or speaking in tongues it's often translated um, it, it, they tend to look at it in a New Testament context and so I I I, I shy away from using it here uh, just because it it's there's so much baggage I guess about it interpretive baggage about it but. But the idea that he is perhaps speaking nonsense, perhaps speaking a, a, a spirit language that only the spirits can understand, something like that, I, I think it's meant to be kind of mysterious here. The point is less, you know, what is it that, that Saul's doing here? And more, hey, the prophet Samuel just prophesied that this is what was going to happen a chapter ago. And sure enough, here it just happened. Clearly, Saul is the legitimate king. I think that's the, the point of the passage here. Yeah. And I actually love it when the Bible leaves things ambiguous. You know, yeah. It actually <laughs> yeah. is going on. A lot of people hate that. They want to have like, <laughs> yeah, what actually happened here? But sometimes just having a lot of possibilities about what, what yeah. is actually going on is nice. So, yeah, that's, that's an interesting, um, interesting one. And that's, of course, the jumping off point. But Saul has a lot of kind of weird spirit encounters in his time that you talk about. And I, I remember one of the questions I I originally sent to you in was about um 
mental mental illness. Um, yeah. The question that Saul has some sort of unrecognized mental illness. Why would people think this? Why would people suggest this? And um, what do you? How do you think mental illness fits into this? Um, into this question? Yeah. 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 So I think I think mental illness is a factor in the discussion, uh, and and I include it in in my chapter on um, in, in the book on this. Um, and I, I think part of the point is for someone to, to for someone to say, hey, um, maybe Saul is having some mental health struggles is not the is not to say that there isn't also spirit phenomena involved here. Again, I think it's part of our modern assumption that something is either spiritual or physical or or mental or, or or something like that whereas in ancient literature we see notions of mental health and spirits and physical health all intertwined in 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 ways that we've been taught to kind of separate theoretically and and so um particularly later on uh, Saul is um, struggling with this um with as many translations say an evil spirit from the Lord uh, and he needs uh, to be soothed uh, with music and and that's where David comes in and bring brings it in and then uh, brings a harp in and plays for him and then uh, it seems like Saul is repeatedly uh, having a kind of acute mental health crisis that drives him to throw spears at people and be viciously jealous of David and so on. Um, I do a lot with um, scholars who work with PTSD and moral injury. We know that Saul is portrayed as a warrior, uh, someone who is asked to, um, to, to do things that are against his moral code, potentially, uh, asked by God, no less, which, which uh, dovetails with um, what mental health uh, scholars talk about is moral injury and the kind of trauma that can result from that. And, and, and perhaps all of this is, is, um, is linked um, in, ways, um, in, in ways that we're only beginning to appreciate. Hmm. That's always a, a difficult question, you know, and when it comes to, of course, the actual uh, theological discussion of, you know, what's going on here? Do how, how do we separate, you know, people who are possessed, people who are seriously mentally ill, and we we probably don't have time to solve that. But um, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll just give you three quick steps. Here we go. One. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, the, there there can be that issue of thinking that it's either or when it can be both and I think but um yeah given that um th th there's also you know another difficult theological question that you do actually shed light on in your um study is the question of uh, you know the, this is a quote from you the uncomfortable idea that a good god would send an evil spirit against a person that's um I think that's in the passage where god sends an an evil spirit to against Saul. Maybe you can let us know what the actual chapter and verse is. I'm not sure what it is, but should this story make those of us who are theologically motivated uncomfortable? And how does your understanding help to shed light? Yeah, it's in several places where it happens in 1 Samuel. Uh, yeah, 16 is the first place where it, it occurs. 
first off, I'd say um, for those for those of you uh, for the, for your listeners who are theologically inclined, I I hope that the Bible always continues to make us uncomfortable. Uh, but uh, but that's a that's maybe a, a separate. Uh, what I would say this is another thing that that maybe isn't handled by the by the Hebrew exactly, but it is uh, helped by the Hebrew. Um, the term that often gets translated here as evil. I think when we when we um, read that word evil in, in in this context, an evil spirit from God, we we think of like the category of evil and the problem of evil and theodicy and and this kind of dualistic image of you know um, the Satan and God and so on. And 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 this is I think a little too far ahead in 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 the development of um, of these notions to to jump um, the adjective here in in the hebrew can just mean um, something less less uh, categorical than evil it, it can just mean bad or as i prefer the translation i prefer is harmful and so from the perspective of saul this is a harmful spirit it's uh it's it's one that's that's causing him him harm in in some way, um, and so in that sense, it's it, it is evil. But but from the perspective of God, God presumably did it on purpose. It's it's a good spirit. It's accomplishing God's God's will, you know, and uh, that doesn't sidestep the problem because why would why would God uh, will harm for someone, particularly the king of of God's chosen people, Israel, um, and uh, uh, Again, I think viewing the story within the uh, the kind of narr- its narrative context, the the spirit of God that was on Saul, it's narrated has moved to David um, earlier in that chapter, and 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 potentially the way that the stories are positioned, Saul, you, uh, David uses the spirit that was given that that Saul had before uses it to soothe him with, with the harp, um, potentially. Um, my, my reading of Saul is that he is a very spiritually porous person to go back to our earlier discussion. He's someone who is especially liable to incursions from spirits. And once the spirit of God departs, there's a kind of vacuum we might say where other spirits can occupy the space it's maybe not unlike um jesus's parables about the spirit that goes away and then comes back with um with with a few of his buddies and and so that's my reading of of that passage i definitely appreciate you know the and this has to be pointed out so many times by uh people that the word that gets translated as evil you know it doesn't necessarily mean evil. I mean, you have that in Isaiah, you know, I create light and darkness. I bring, I create good and evil. I think it says that uh-huh. like, if you ever go on a skeptic's website, it's like, God creates evil. Look at this. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, it, it definitely does nuance the discussion when you note that it can just be bad. It can just mean harm. Um, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't solve it, but I definitely agree with that. We've of course been talking about Saul and I'm wondering, do you feel sympathy for him as a character? Because I remember, you know, there have been people I've talked to about Saul and they don't have any sympathy for him. Uh I just find that so strange. You know, I've always thought, you know, man, I I don't know if I want to view this guy as a villain, even though, of course, it seems like in the narrative, uh, God isn't on his side. You know, it's it's a difficult one to, to navigate, you know, the story. 
I absolutely feel sympathy for Saul. I think he's a fascinating uh, figure. One of my favorite characters in all of biblical literature. He's, he's, he's classically tragic. He's always trying to do the right thing. And in doing the right thing, it, it, it ends poorly for him all the way up until the end um, of, of his life. He's, he's haunted by, by spirits. He, 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 his failures are often, I talk about in the book, his failures are often cultic. Um, he, he messes up at the point of sacrifice. He is caught between God's expectations and the expectations of the people of their King. And, um, and he is, I think, um, one of the, one of the most fascinating character studies in, in all of, in all of scripture. Yeah. Aren't there actually two accounts of his death? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I'm I am not up on the latest of kind of the source criticism of of this what's called the Deuteronomistic history, but uh, I believe that this can be attributed to uh, what what I and many uh, critical scholars would say is just um, two different versions that survive, and the editors decided to retain both. If I remember correctly, in one of them. He is killed, but another he kills himself, if I'm correct. Yeah. Yeah. In the one where he falls on his sword, right? That yeah. one at the end there's of the, first there's Samuel. That one. There's that yeah. one. Yeah. And then there's another and, one. Yeah. And then at the beginning of of Second Samuel, there is um, I guess the account given by uh an Amalekite that that he killed him. Okay. And I suppose, you know, that there's also that question of, you know, well, maybe maybe the Malachite was just lying. That's the, that would be the more conservative um, right. view of it. But yeah, it's yeah. a, I kind of, I kind of uh, hope the, hope that it was the Amalekite was telling the truth because I think the other option is, is uh, <laughs> pretty sad. Just the thought that yeah. he held his own sword, but um, right. Yeah. Um, Although it's, it would be fitting for his character. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The other um, episode that I think, uh, I'd like to talk about with you um, that really informs this discussion is the the Witch of Endor episode. Uh-huh. Maybe at this point people will listen to me reading out the story of the Witch of Endor. I don't know. Maybe I'll record that at some point. Okay. Because uh-huh. I think it's great background for this. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself, and put on other garments, and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? 
But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has turned the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. Before we get into the kind of the weeds of this, um, something I was not- I was fascinated by your observation um, that the terms we translate as witches, wizards, and diviners in First Samuel twenty-eight, which is the background to this passage, yeah, that this can plausibly be interpreted as referring to spirits. And um, yeah, I've never heard that before. <laughs> could, could you elaborate yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah. So I cite some. I cite some literature. Sometimes words in biblical languages, I think, are better off left untranslated because there isn't a, a, a good parallel, you know. Um, and anyone who has studied another language before, um, when trying to articulate something, you're just like, oh, that just doesn't translate from French to English or something. It's just you have to. I don't know. You have to hear it in French in order, whatever, you know, and, and it's the same for, for the Bible. And, and perhaps these terms are, should fit into that category because of course, terms like witches, wizards, um, you know, people are thinking about Harry Potter or whatever. And, and, uh, and, and it, it might just not be helpful. Um, I think that whatever these terms are, they, they can be read and it really depends because the Greek uh, translation maybe has a different view than than the Hebrew does, but um, it, they can be read either as the spirits or the people that use these spirits for the purposes of divination or or, or magic or whatever. Um, in and and I, in the book I cite some some uh, philological studies that that dive into this little bit and look at um, surrounding cu- cultures and so on. It's also rooted in part with these ethnographers who study cultures and see how mediums sometimes use the future by by consulting a familiar spirit one 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 that they have worked with in the past mm-hmm. and i think that's so true what you say about hebrew you know sometimes words can in hebrew if i'm correct they could have like double and triple meanings and all yeah. these weird things like i remember uh, listening to uh, 
he's kind of like if anyone if there's any celebrity bible scholar it would probably be someone like michael heiser i don't know if you've heard of him but uh he has a he has this idea that for example like the serpent in genesis 3 that that's actually a triple entendre and that it's uh-huh. a serpent that's actually the shining one and it's also the uh-huh. diviner that the, the, the term can mean all three things and you know that, that there's definitely that that sense of you know sometimes how do we translate these words is a very difficult question. yeah so and and also how were they translated in different periods uh and and you know words change meaning over time yeah. and so second temple jews might have understood a biblical text in one way uh, and we might in a different way how does this story of the witch of Endor? How does it have any relevance to the topic of spirit possession? Because I don't think any, like for me, but on, but until I read your book, I never would have thought that. Uh-huh. But, um, maybe you can just begin to show us how this actually has relevance. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. This was actually the first text that I was working with when I started writing this book. And it's the one that I think best exemplifies the effectiveness of, of my method uh, my interdisciplinary method of looking at the ethnographers, because you're right. It it might not be something that people think of immediately um, when thinking about spirits. The, the Hebrew term most commonly translated as spirit into English, ruach, um, does not even occur in the passage. My reading stems from looking at the medium herself, um, the one who is commonly called a witch, um, often called the witch at Endor, although there, there, although that word for witch does not actually appear, the, the word that gets translated as witch elsewhere in the Bible doesn't actually appear in 1 Samuel 28. The, the, the text itself calls her what, what we normally translate as medium. And uh, looking at ethnographic literature on cultures around the world um, where people go to talk to mediums to divine things, particularly to talk to the dead, Often these figures accomplish their craft because they are professionals in in the cultures where they are. They do so by means of um, a spirit, uh, a spirit that they know, often a deceased ancestor uh, or or something like that. And so uh, in, in many of the popular portrayals of this um, story in art, when Samuel appears, he is often portrayed as a kind of ghostly figure dressed in white um, coming out of a fire or something like that. But I suggest that the medium is actually hosting Samuel within her body and speaking her her lines with, with her voice, in part because this is just how it's done. We see it around the world when, when, when people consult with consult with the dead. Um, and in part also, there are various different cues in the text uh, that I bring out um, that suggest that this that this woman is a, a, a professional who does this, you know, for, for for a living. The question that's always puzzled a lot of commentators is when the woman sees Samuel and she cries out and says, why have you deceived me? She seems to be surprised to see Samuel or something. Mm-hmm. There seems yeah. to be that element to the story. So yeah. how, do, how does your explanation account for that? So one of the common ways that this text is interpreted is that the woman is a huckster and that she is um, kind of like a fortune teller who tricks people. 
And, and so the reason that she is afraid is that she did not expect her little magic trick to actually work and, and, and pull up the, pull up the ghost of Samuel. This is, this is a, a pretty common um, interpretation. One that is maybe suggested by some ancient versions of the story. Um, but it's one that ultimately I, I reject, uh, in part because, uh, as I said, I think she's a professional who does this for a living. Uh, and so why would she be surprised that the thing she was trying to do works? You know, why would she be surprised to see Samuel when, when, when bringing up Samuel was exactly what she's been tasked with doing? Instead, what I think is causing her fear is, is, that, um, is that she recognizes Saul. Saul, we are told earlier in the story, has kicked out um, all the all the people of her profession uh, out of the land of, of of Israel. Saul is her is her enemy, and here he is in disguise, right right in front uh, of her. Uh, the question for me, which I I don't really necessarily have a good uh, a good handle on, uh, although I I make a good try of it anyway in the book, is. What is it about seeing Samuel that causes her to recognize Saul? Um, and, and, and this is one that there are maybe a few different answers for. One may be that because she's begun to possess Samuel, she gains special insight about the world or something. I'm not really sure. Maybe as they're getting closer and closer to the moment when Samuel appears, maybe Saul does something that reveals his presence to her. It's, it's, it's hard to yeah. read well, between the lines like that. Well, the way I was thinking of it is if she's being possessed by uh -huh. Samuel, it's like she she gains some of his, um, I suppose, memories or something. Yeah. Perhaps what's going on there is, you know, Samuel will recognize Saul, whatever the case, because yeah. he knows him so well. So that's that's a yeah. possibility as well, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah, no easy answer, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you, I, I think that's a definitely a possibility that, that you lay out there. We're coming towards the end of our time, but um, just uh, a couple other questions. Why, what would the reason be for them wanting to ban mediums and uh, and such? Because these seem to be very common in in other cultures. So, is there? Do you have any idea of why they'd be trying to get rid of this? Um, there are, we might say, uh, according to the law three approved ways to tell the future in the Bible. You can have a dream. You can use um, the, the Urim and the Thummim, you know, the potentially the dice that the priest had, right. um, or you can talk to a prophet. This is, these are, uh, these are the, the, the principal ways that someone in, in the Hebrew Bible is allowed to tell the future. You, if you cut open a lamb and look at its guts and you're like, oh, it's going to rain tomorrow. That's, that's not good. Don't do that. That's the wrong way to tell the future. You know, it'll work. Don't do it though. That's, that seems to be the, the, the perspective of at least some passages like that stuff totally works. Don't do it, <laughs> you know? And so we see that Saul Again, he's this tragic figure. He's trying to do it right. You know, he he's like he kicks out all the diviners. He kicks out all the the Harry Potters out of the out of um, out of Israel, 
you know, he consults with, he consults with prophets. He, but, but it, the text says that, that God does not speak to Saul in any of the approved methods. So he goes into a gray area, right? He says, I'm going to go talk to a prophet, Samuel. That's allowed. You're allowed to talk to prophets. It's just that Samuel happens to be dead. Right. That's it. And so the way to do that is to talk to is to talk to a medium. And so even even in this final uh, kind of self-defeating act, Saul is still um, compromising on his you know, piety, trying to have it both ways, which is just it's just so Saul. It's just it's just what he yeah. does. Yeah. 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 Well, there, there's so there's so many things, you know, we could uh, look at in in uh, in first Samuel. This seems to be kind of the the main course of your uh of your book, you know, that it has most of the, most of the stuff that's uh, really interesting about this topic. I suppose in, in conclusion, if there's like one th- big theological conclusion you take from any of this, um, what, what would it be? Sure. Yeah. And I'll, um, I'll, 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 I'll kind of take off my, my, uh, you know, Bible scholar hat for a second and maybe put on my Christian minister caller, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you will. Um, and I think there are a few kind of takeaways. Um, one is that, uh, one is that, uh, I, it, we have to be careful of de-spiritualizing the old Testament and of pre-Christian Judaism. And that is something that I hope that my book accomplishes, especially for, for people reading it primarily for uh, kind of theological purposes, is that, is that um, God's spirit is active in Israel. Um, and and Jesus's coming is not a correction of that, but a culmination of that, according to, to classical Christian um, theology. Um, but, but there is still a discrete, um, you know, uh, relationship between God's spirit and Israel in, in the Old Testament that needs to be appreciated and recognized. So that's that, that's one thing. Um, a second thing is uh, I uh, ho- I had hoped to, um, and this one's maybe a little bit more buried, but uh, in a lot of different Christian traditions, there is this sense that spirit stuff is is something that those weird people do those weird and then fill in the blank about who the weird people are. Sometimes it's particular Christian denominations. Um, frankly, sometimes it's often people of color, uh, or immigrants, uh, Christians from other parts of the world. Uh, you can get into that, that old prejudice of primitive religion versus sophisticated religion or something like that. And what I hoped to do with this book in part was, um, was actually kind of turn the microscope around and say, actually, if you are not engaged in the spiritual aspect of your faith, you're the weird one. You're, you're the weird one out. Um, and perhaps, perhaps we're asking the wrong questions. The question shouldn't be, why is it that those people believe in spirits and do these kinds of spirit things? Perhaps the, perhaps the question should be, well, why don't you? Uh, European intellectual tradition seems to actually be the odd one out uh, in in wanting to bracket this this kind of stuff off so quickly and easily and and so that's that's maybe um, another takeaway if you will 
Yeah, I think sometimes a lot of modern uh, Christianity can feel very dry and rationalistic, you know, and yeah. uh, not open to seeing the world as a lot weirder than it is. And not as sort of like almost God is almost deistic, you know, he just sets this clock yeah. universe in motion. Yeah. Maybe we need to be more open that this world is filled with all sorts of weird things yeah. that aren't that aren't natural. And you know, I'm not I'm not gonna tell people to go and consult mediums or, or <laughs> witches or anything because I say don't go near that stuff. Um if some of the stories I've heard are correct, that stuff is really messed up. But um yeah, I, I would say that, you know, it's it definitely you're bringing a great insight that, you know, uh, maybe the world's weirder. That's just what, uh -huh. what we have to think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, um, to, to again, be, be a theological, the, the, to use the language, to use Paul's language, the body of Christ has many gifts. And, um, if you are not someone inclined towards, you know, we'll say charismatic spiritual experience, you don't have to feel, uh, like, like you are, um, incomplete or as a Christian or, um, but that it, you can just say that's, that's not my gift, but it doesn't mean that you can't appreciate it or welcome it into your, into your midst and, and be edified by it. And perhaps you have a different gift to bring to those who do engage in that stuff, uh, more readily than you. Absolutely. So be open, but don't, don't expect that you're going to be inclined in that way, I suppose. That's yeah. It. It's been great to talk to you. Um, so many, so many fascinating things for the audience to mull over. And uh, yeah, just uh, greatly appreciate you coming on today. It's been great. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, very nice conversation. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs>